Well, good evening, everybody. Great to see you. So grateful that uh, you decided to come out and spend some time in God's Word. I'm really excited for what God um, has and what He wants to do and speak to all of us together. Um, we really are, how many are grateful for the faithfulness of God? Just over your life, it's so important that we acknowledge that. Um, I would just want to begin tonight as we lean into the subject of the end times, and, uh, but I, I want to pray and just commit this time to the Lord and ask God to open our hearts and to do something great and fresh in all of us. So Father, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. God, thank you for um, all, the, all the folks, all your people who are here to hear from you, not to hear from a man, not to hear from uh, an idea, but to hear from your word. And Lord, we recognize tonight that your word is supreme. It is infallible. It is all authoritative. And we come to your word, and we don't stand judgment over your word, God. Your word stands in judgment over us. Your word declares what is true. And we align our lives with it. And by doing that, we align our lives with you. And so, Lord, we just... Uh, we, we are so grateful, and we love you, and we worship you tonight, and we welcome you here in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So I wanted, to, I, I wanted us to take some time over the next several weeks and look at the, uh, the end times, looking at the biblical end times. Now, before I, I begin looking into this this evening, it's important that I share with you a bit of, of my journey um, with eschatology. And what eschatology means is the study of end times. And anytime things happen in Israel, um, everybody's ears perk up. And uh, I would say that's probably why uh, we have a good-sized crowd here is because things are going on in Israel. If we decided to do this when uh, there wasn't any conflict going on, wasn't a war going on, um, probably be like, oh, I'll catch it next time. But right now, we wanna, we, we're curious about what's, what's going on in the world? How does Israel fit in to all of this? What's the plan of God for, for our lives, the church? What's our purpose during these times? And so my journey with eschatology began, uh, same as my wife's. We, as my wife, we, we were in um, Bible college together. And it began in the study of Daniel Revelation. And, and uh, it was a class that uh, that I'll confess to you as, as, as your pastor, um, I got a D my first go around in Daniel Revelation. Uh, but because I am, I am determined and I wanted to be a man of excellence, I retook it at a night class. So there you go, and I got a B, okay? So um, thank you very much. Uh, but what I appreciated about my Bible college is that they challenged us to learn and to understand the different views of eschatology. And I don't know if you've ever gone on that journey of looking at the, the, the different views. For Part of my education was having to articulate the different views of, of eschatology. And uh, if, if you've been around Christianity for more than like two minutes, you know that there's a lot of hot debate between the different views of eschatology and how Israel fits in, and the rapture, and the millennium, and 
All these things are, are debated quite often. And, uh, and, and so as I studied them, I, I began to, to see things I had never seen before. I grew up in a, in a pretty normal, what would be a evangelical church. Uh, we, were at, we were Pentecostal, and, uh, but there was the same teachings as what would be uh, evangelical. So part of the journey is having to articulate the different views of eschatology. And in that journey, I, I began looking at the kingdom of God. I began looking at um, God's plan for the church, the plan for the world, God's plan um, with the rapture, with Israel, with events of the end times, signs, and, and all those different things, and the, and, the, and the characters of all those things. And so I, I lean into those. And it was a journey that I've been on for a while, and, uh, and as I've been in ministry for now 25 years, I've been in, uh, in full-time ministry, my wife and I together, I have leaned in and asked God humbly to, to reveal his heart to me regarding these areas. And so as I, as I share with you tonight, I, I don't share as uh, to convince anybody about anything. I, I share with you what I believe the scriptures say. And uh, as we look into the word, uh, I'm confident that the scripture will say what it actually says. And then the question is, as we continue through this, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for uh, regarding the rapture? Or what does that mean regarding Israel? Or uh, another one of the hot topics is a, a third temple. Is there one or isn't one? Or isn't there one? So it's important. It's important we walk through this. And so I, I want to invite you also tonight um, just to open your heart to what God would, would say. Most of us have our eschatology, our beliefs of eschatology, because we adopted the beliefs of someone else. Um, we said, that sounds about right, and you seem like you've, you've written more books than I have about it, so okay. And we've, that has been our eschatology. And then one, most of the time when we, when, we, when we grasp something regarding the end times, and we feel, because it's, it is a bit of a mystery, there is, because there's conflicting um, beliefs, there's four major beliefs regarding the end times, the return of Christ, the when, and all that kind of stuff. Most of the time when we latch on to a, to a belief, we, we spend most of our Christian journey uh, in what's called confirmation bias, seeking what confirms our current belief that we're holding. And so um, I, I'm, uh, by nature, I'm stubborn, and by nature, I, I, I don't want to adopt someone else's belief, but I do want to grow in what I believe God has said in His Word, and then through, through reasoning with other professors and, and those who have doctorates and other pastors who have had to, had to put, pastors have to put eschatology in a, in, in, in a manner to, to people that actually helps them, that actually empowers them to be what God's called them to be. If you're not a pastor, you can it, you, there is no practical application to, to eschatology. You just write stuff, stay, say stuff, and go, ooh, deal with that one. You don't, have to, you don't have to deal with anything else in people's lives, but pastors do. And so it's out of that heart um, from, from a shepherd and, and from the great shepherd that I have grown in my, in my view of eschatology. And so um, I'm not going to be presenting the four major views over the next few weeks. 
But I'm going to be t- looking at the two most popular ones. And so in, in my study with God's Word and with the Holy Spirit, I, I, we want to approach the Scriptures without a predetermined filter of eschatology. Now, for some of you, that, that may make you uncomfortable, and, and my heart is just for us to, to, to hear from Jesus. But I, I want us to do that. I want us to approach the Scriptures from a, with, without filters and see what would God would say about what's going on in the world now. What would He say about His second coming? What would He say about the things that He spoke of in, in Matthew 24? And so we're going to be looking at, at these things, and, and we're going to be beginning there. Uh, for, for many of you who may have questions on some of my resources that I'm going to be using, um, I, I have some um, that I'm happy to, to share with you. One is Victory in Jesus by it's Greg L. Um, Balson. I can't remember writing here. Um, there's another one is Eschatology and Interpreting Prophecy, which is James Jordan, and Victorious Eschatology by Harold R. R. Eberl. And so these, those are some, not all, but th- those are some. There's a Another book I have a, a, on Revelation that lays out the four views that I just spoke about as well. But everyone wants to know the future. So if you know the future, you, you will know, basically, things will be predictable. And you'll be able to make decisions based off of what is coming. If it was in the realm of um, economics, you want to know the future so that you can, you can leverage that and make money or or, or whatever it may be, we all want to know the future, and all of us are prone to be curious about the future. And so in the elements of our faith as Christians, um, all of us want to know what God has planned. What are His plans? What are, what are His plans for the earth, for us, for our children, as we're part of the kingdom of God? Um, much of, of the of the emotion that's around eschatology is an emotion of fear, um, confusion, some dread. And I just don't believe that is the heart of God for his people. Um, I believe in a God that has won the victory for us as believers. And if you've been around our church, we have spent a lot of time focused on the kingship of Christ, his authority that is, that is now. He has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. But we're curious. We want to know and how, about the end times. And uh, we, we're, we're thinking thoughts about the future. Because, not because we just, we, we want to leverage it for our good. Because there's a sincerity in our hearts on, hey God, what is going on? And we want to know God's plan. We want to know the program for, for the future so that we can get with the program according to God's future. So when it comes to God's plan and purposes and events of the end times, um, these are the events that have been argued about for years and years. Unfortunately, I, you know, I know people who have, who have divided relationally over their end-time beliefs. Just as a disclaimer, that is not to be for people of God. That is not to be for believers. So, but w- one of the reasons that there is so much debate over in times um, eschatology, the events of it, is because as you lean into them, they can be difficult to discern. So they can be difficult as you read the scriptures, and we're going to get into them in just a moment because we, we're going to do one hour. Um, but the, the struggle historically has been 
that you can have two brilliant people with two different conclusions regarding the end times. So how do the prophecies in the Bible then come together in a way that makes sense? So I'm always desiring to learn, always desiring to hear God's voice um, as, we, as I study the scriptures. And so tonight we're going we're gonna to begin by looking at what um, in theology you would call the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 24. And if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to, to turn to Matthew 24. The places of Scripture that we get much of our end time events is from Matthew 24. There's also, we get them from Daniel 9, Daniel 2, and Revelation. And, and so we, and in those, we, we, get, we look at the, that which concerns the Jews the Antichrist, and the rapture. Many Christians today in the West hold, and what, that's what you and I have probably, I, I, I would assume, you and I have grown up um, under what most people hold in the West, in the American Evangelical Church, what's called a futuristic view. And what a futuristic view is, and it's a, it's a, it is a theological term, but once I, once I say it, you'll say, oh yeah, that is probably what, what most of us are familiar with it's a futuristic view, and what that means is the view, the futuristic view sees the prophecies of, of Jesus from Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation happening in the future. So we would, we would read Matthew 24, and we'd say, oh yeah, yep, that's the signs, that's what's going to happen. Um, when we see those, we better look up, because our salvation is drawing near, or if you're King James, draweth nigh, depending on which one you are. Uh, but that's, that's where we would, we, we would lean into that. So when things start happening in Israel, start happening around the world, during COVID, during oh, you know, what, what, 9-11, everyone starts looking. Well, see, it says this, see, it says this, see, it says this. And naturally, I, I, I grew up the same way. That's kind of how, how I, I was informed of these, of these aspects. Um, but th- this is a view that, that has, has been taught mostly in the Western church, meaning the American church um, or the Western hemisphere. So th- this is a view that's mostly there. And so uh, it's interesting that actually that view that most of the things of Revelation, Matthew 24, you know, actually Matthew 24 and Revelation are things that are all going to take place in the future. What many um, evangelicals are unaware of is that is actually... Um, a view that hasn't been around for very long. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Um, it, it, it was not a popular view at all until like 1909 during a, uh, uh, and, and I remember studying this actually in Bible college, 1909, the, a, a scholar came out with a Bible with commentary and it was the Schofield Study Bible. So that it started making its way around different churches and great things about study Bibles is you read the scriptures and then you read the commentary and you're like, I don't know what that means. And you go, well, that must mean what it means. And then you preach what it, you, you just read because you think, well, that must be what it means. And so and the Schofield, as a theologian, looked to these things, to the future, to the future, to the future. Most of the European church, um, most of, of them would not prescribe to that belief regarding Matthew 24 and also in Revelation. And so we'll, we'll lean into that because it's important that we, that we uh, lean into this because this is where God has kind of worked in my life. But the futuristic view is seeing everything is in the future. And I want us to look um, at, at, at the view that I, I want to share with you that I, I would like to propose to you uh, 
that I hold, that I hold as, as your pastor. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you have to change yours. It doesn't mean that, that, uh, that we have to divide. Uh, what it does mean, though, is that we're still growing, and we want, we want God to, to do things in us. But I would, I would hold what would be, I, I would call a victorious view. I remember um, really struggling through some of these aspects of, of, of uh, Daniel Revelation and looking at Matthew 24 and reading the text and going, yes, but it says this, and we're going to read it in just a moment, but how can that mean in the future when Jesus said it was then? How, how, do, we set, how do we get this from, from 2,000 years ago and say it's going to happen sometime in the, in the future? So, but part of that is, I, I believe in a view where Christ is victorious. And I believe that, um, that again, these, these views are not something we should divide over, but how you view whether these things are futuristic or they're victorious uh, deeply impacts on how you view God's kingdom on the earth today and your role in what God is doing and for, for the most part, evangelicals believe um, everything in our world, and, and I've heard this, and I, I've said this in my journey, um, we would say this, well, you know, the Bible says everything's going to get worse. I, how many here have said that and heard that? I have. Okay, all right, all right. Well, you know, so, so we look around and we go, well, you know, everything's going to get worse. So, I mean, it's inevitable. Really, really not a whole lot I can do about it. Jesus said everything's going to get worse. Everything's going to get bad. And so, if you believe this, if you, um, if you say, yep, that's true, uh, and you apply it to the whole, the whole of Scripture, then your vision for the world is this. Well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So, I don't know, let's go to Denny's, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I, that's that, okay, there's nothing we can do about it um, because it's going to get bad no matter how much we work, no matter how much we labor, no matter how much we share the gospel, no matter how much we apply God's word in our, in our profession and what we do in our family, no matter, no matter how much we, we allow the grace of God to allow us to raise godly kids, that raise godly families, that raise godly kids, that, that, that go and represent God in the world, no matter, no matter what we do, we are destined to be degraded as a world. So if you believe that, it deeply impacts your actions. So I've, I've shared this illustration again, but it, it, it fits here. So if I was, if I was to bring you a, a, a 57 Chevy, it's an old one, and, I, and you were a car, you restored cars, and I said, I want you to restore this car to its original pristine condition. And I want you to spare no expense, and I want you to you work, you bill me all the hours you need to bill me, and I, I want you to research everything. I want everything original. I want the original stitching. I want the original, I, I, the motor, I want it to be original. I want everything about it. I want the chrome to look exactly like it did in 57. And I don't, I don't, you do it, and you work hard at it, and you put in long hours because I want this car to be amazing. And so, you, so you're like, okay, I want to do that. And then I come, I come to the shop, and I go, how's it going? And you're like, man, it's, it's going. It's slow, but it's going. But I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. And then the, you ask me, you say, okay, but this is going to be a beautiful car when I'm done with it. What are you going to do with it? 
Jason, what are you going to do with this car once I get it all where you told me to get it to? And I tell you, I'm going to enter it into a demolition derby. Would that affect your work from that point on? Yeah, it would. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of nations, teaching them what he has taught us. And he said, don't quit, don't stop. And he said, do everything for the glory of God. He gave us promises that he would be with us at all times. And he said, yeah, the world's going to hate you, yes, but, but you are to bring my kingdom to the earth. Okay. We're, we are to, to bring on the earth what God has called us to bring on the earth. And so I have a belief that God is not entering the world into a demolition derby when we're done with it. And so, a victorious view, which I hold, is something that that moves your prayers from, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, to God, let your kingdom come on earth as, as it is in heaven. Most believers pray, Lord Jesus, please, won't you come and get me out of here? Instead of, Lord Jesus, will your kingdom come on earth? as it is in heaven. Because I know a guy who told us to say that. That's what Jesus said. And so we have to ask these questions, did Jesus mean that? That we could pray that? Did he, did he intend on answering those prayers? So how can, how can I, in a victorious eschatology, how can I be a part of what God's doing on the earth? and apply it to the world and to the people around me. And God, because I know God is with me, his will is for me to apply his victory in my life and his word on the earth and through the church. I believe in a victorious church. So there's a couple things I want to point out, and this is necessary for me to do this, this first one. And I know you might be thinking, can you get to the Bible? Get to the Bible. I will, I promise. There's a couple things I want to point out. The, the, the portion of God's word um, that we're going to look at in Matthew, uh, Psalm 23, 24, um, it's, it's not so obscure that we can't, that can't understand it. It's actually very, very clear. But what's on my heart, and I believe God's, God's purpose for his people, that he wants to encourage us because, because God has good news for our future. He actually has good news for what he's doing on the earth. I don't believe this is the late great planet earth. I don't believe that. There's a glorious future in front of us. And, and even though there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be tough times, um, we are on our way to reaching the ultimate goal that the Bible teaches. And that is the nations would come and, and be an inheritance to Christ through the work of his church. If you don't believe that, you won't actually in, engage with that. And so we'll find ways to keep ourselves busy until, in our minds, Christ then returns and gets us out of here. But we believe, I believe that God is sovereign over all things, over all affairs, that he's not going to turn history over to the devil, 
Like he's not going to turn history over to the devil that he defeated in order to change history. He's not going to give the earth back to the devil after, after giving his life to purchase dominion on earth and in heaven from Satan and crushing his skull through his resurrection. And then part of his plan now is to give it all back over to Satan. I don't believe that. And I believe the, te- the Bible teaches that God doesn't believe that either. And so all, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So Jesus is not going to do what the first Adam did and give Satan full reign on the earth. And I know you're going, what about this scripture? What about this scripture? Just hold tight. I hold, a, I hold an optimistic view of the end times, meaning what is going to happen between now and the return of Jesus. I have an optimistic view, and I have what is... What is what is called a victorious view of the future. So I've come to a belief that Christians have every reason to expect the victory of Jesus, that to expect the triumph of the gospel as the great commission is fulfilled on the earth, and that God is not going to allow this earth to become totally degenerated. And the reason being is the kingdom of God has the final word. So I ask you to open your heart as we get into this first passage. This isn't wishful thinking that I'm going to be sharing with you, um, but I'm asking you to allow God's heart to give you, to give substance to our hope that there is a glorious future in front of us as the church of Jesus Christ. It's glorious, it's powerful, it's wonderful, and God's invited us to be a part of it. And once you see it, it's very difficult to unsee it. So I want to ask you over the next several weeks to ask God, as we come to his word to be humble, to be teachable, and receive a fresh understanding of what God is saying. And later we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, but today I want to begin in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and this is what part of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things, tell us when these things be, And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This is the question that all of us ask quite often, isn't it? Jesus, tell us. So why we need to start at this passage is because how you understand this passage will determine what you believe about many events of the end times. Not only about the future, but also about the function and purpose as individuals and for us as a local church. It's so important. So Jesus answered this by talking about few things. He answered it by talking about people who claim to be the Messiah, earthquakes, wars, famines, persecutions, people falling away from their faith. He talked about the gospel um, being preached around the world. He talked about destruction, tribulation, and people being taken away. And so what you believe about all those things All those events impact significantly how you view everything else regarding the end times. So most evangelicals would conclude that the things that Jesus spoke about after those questions were going to happen in the future. Most would. They would happen in the future before the end of the world and his return. So for most of us, the the big question we see here is when will the end of the world be? When is that? Is it now? 
Is what's happening in Israel? Is this, is this what's, what's out of Revelation 20? Is it what's, what's going on in Ezekiel 30? What, like what, hey, what is this? Is this it? And as you know, if you've been around for you know, several years, the question is always asked anytime something kicks off with Israel. Is this it? Is this the one? And then there's a lot of speculation about what happens, what it means, the nation surrounding. Well, if they get involved, that means that I'm going to do this. And if they get involved, that means I'm going to go to my bunker. And if that nation gets involved, then I'm going to. And so we're, we're, we're moving the, the things around the, the, the flannel board trying to figure it out. But this is the question all of us are, are asking. And so... But I, I want to propose to you, actually, this isn't one question. Uh, we know it's, it's, they're different questions, but I want to propose to you that the answer that Jesus gives is actually to three separate questions. It's not to one. So I, I want you to look at the Scripture with me. So he sat with the disciples, verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? Question 1. What will be the sign of your coming? Question two. And of the end of the age? Question three. So, question one, when will, the, when will these things be? When, when will they happen? Question two, what will be the sign of your coming? Question three, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So, whether you see them as three questions or one really matters on how you view everything else. It deter- and how he, it's how you also view his reply. So it's really important that, that as we look at this, you, you go, okay, all right, let's see. Like, let's see, Jason. Let's, let's see if, if, if actually maybe I've, I've looked at that a different way. And so I, 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 wanna, I want us to see that part of Matthew 24, and it's so important, I, I have to establish this before we get into these other um, arenas of Daniel and, and Revelation. Um, and so my, my heart is to, to um, expand your, your view and actually listen to the words of Jesus, not the words of Jason. So I want to see part, uh, part of Matthew 24 um, is that some is, has been fulfilled in the past and, and part will be f- fulfilled in the future. And later, when, when we uh, look at the, uh, the book of Revelation, it'll be the same. That some, I, w- I want to show to you through Scripture, that some has already been fulfilled, the words of Jesus, and some will be fulfilled in the future. So there's, there's three distinct questions. And so the answer to these questions were, are going to be found in what Jesus says in context. So question one, when will these things be? The question is, what things? What things is Jesus are the disciples asking about? What are these things that they're talking about? So in order to do that, we've got to go to Matthew 23. So Jesus, this is a, a, a if you haven't read this, let me encourage you, go through, read 23, 24. It's, it's very powerful. But, but Jesus is standing in the temple. And the temple is for the Jews. The temple is the most holy of place um, for the Jews. And they're in the temple. And there's two groups of people that are standing there. His disciples, his followers, his disciples. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he warns them. And he warns um, those who believe, about, who believe in him. He said, hey, listen, there is hypocrisy and there is spiritual abuse that's going on with those guys over there who are the religious leaders. Now, if you read that, it's very clear that's what he's doing. 
He's saying, beware, be aware of them. They are, they, they are spiritually abusing you. And so Matthew 23, 1 through 2 says this, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And Jesus goes on through verse 12, warning his followers about these men. And then, then he starts pulling the curtains back of their, of their hearts, their evil hearts, because they are, they are not doing what they were supposed to be doing as religious leaders. They're not honoring God. It's important, though, you have to understand um, that they, these, are, these are religious leaders. These are one of the, the more honored people in, in their society. And Jesus begins exposing them for the true people that they are. And so then he turns after he warns his disciples, and he's warning them with the religious leaders in the room, which is a little uncomfortable for them and probably uncomfortable for the followers because they're like, Jesus, they're right there. You, you know, you're speaking really this about them. And then he turns to them and he speaks to them. And he says, starting in Matthew 23, 14, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and, and make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell or the devil as yourselves. So, man, he is, he is ripping into them. Then he goes, woe to you, blind guides. And then he continues, you blind fools in verse 17. And then he, in verse 18, if anyone swears by an altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. Verse 20. And again, verse 20, again, he's talking about what they're doing. Verse 21, whoever swears by the temple. So they, they made all these loopholes and they were leveraging all these different things. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Then he tells them what you're doing there. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup, but you're full of greed and indulgence. You blind Pharisees. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes. You're like whitewashed tombs. You, you, you appear beautiful, but you're full of dead bones. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Um, verse 34. Actually, let's, let's move to um, verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape, escape being sentenced to hell. Now, if Jesus asked you that, I'd be concerned. <laughs> this is what Jesus said. The question is, did Jesus mean what he said? Verse 34, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. He's, often, he's also speaking about himself. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. He's talking about the disciples who have yet to be deployed after the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 35, so that on you, 
may come. So, so, so look at this. So that, so because of that, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Look at those last two words and look at what it says. It says what? This generation. So these, these men who were considered the most holy and wisest men of the Jewish religious order. And Jesus spoke, prophesied a judgment over them. And so it's interesting also how the Bible ordered Abel, it, how, how the Hebrew Bible is, is ordered. The, Abel is in the first book and Zechariah is in the last book. Um, it's, it's a coincidence that it's A to Z. Okay, English language wasn't included there. But Jesus said, ev- like, Every bit of righteous blood that, were, that was spilt, that you spilt from the servants of God that I sent you, that there would be judgment and their blood of the righteous will be upon you and this will happen in your generation. Then Jesus turns to his, to his precious city and now he begins to speak to Jerusalem. He says, in verse 37, 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Listen to these words. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. I want you to understand, I want you to think the place where Jesus is, is saying this. He is in the temple. He's speaking to the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He has is, he is rebuked them. He has prophesied a judgment on them because they're going to re, reject him. They're, the religious leaders are going to demand through their connection with, with Rome, demand that he be crucified, but Jesus allowed them to because Jesus said, no man crucified, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly. So this was all, but they were rejecting him. They're also going to, um, to murder and, and chase after his disciples after the, the day of Pentecost. And so he prophesies a, a judgment upon, upon them. Then Jesus turns and walks out of the temple. Now, when it, across the, 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 the way from the temple is a valley the Kidron Valley, on the other side is the Mount of Olives. So, but before we go any further, the question is, did the prophecy of judgment that Jesus spoke ever happen? That's so important we ask the question, because Jesus said something, declared something was going to happen in this chapter. So he said this, Matthew 23, 36, truly I say to you, all these things, what? What things? Those things that I just said, that judgment will come upon you. All the, uh, all the righteous blood that was, that was shed from Abel to Zechariah will be on you. you. You will face the judgment of that. And he says, truly I say to you, in verse 36, all these things will come upon which generation? This generation. So here's the question. Is Jesus a false prophet or is he a real prophet? 
So most, most evangelicals were raised with this idea to believe that everything else Jesus said after this is somewhere in the future. So Jesus repeats this later in Matthew, which we'll look in just a moment, but a generation. So usually, and biblically, a generation is between 30 to 40 years. So roughly 30 years of people living, 30 to 40 years, people living within that, that chunk, right? So Jesus said, this, a judgment's coming on you upon this generation. Well, what year was it when Jesus was saying this? It was around 30 AD. So if, in order to judge, which we do all other prophecies within Scripture, we, we go, well, you know, the proof of God is proven because of one of the, one of the proofs is prophecy. The other is, is uh, um, uh, like, um, like artifactual finds, um, historical documents that actually prove, that, that are outside of the Bible that prove Jesus was real. And all. you're like, see, see, see. So here's the question. Is there any proof that what Jesus said actually happened within 30 to 40 years? That's the question. Did something catastrophic descend upon the city of Jerusalem within 40 years? So he, 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 he was speaking to the religious leaders. He then turned and his heart was ripped. And he said, oh, my city, if you just would have come to me, I would have gathered you. I would have protected you from what? From what he just said was coming. Did anything happen within a generation? Was Jesus a, a, a real prophet, a false prophet, or a real prophet? So did anything impact the people living within that generation? And the answer to that is yes, it did. And this is something that most evangelicals are unaware of because our current, a lot of our eschatology doesn't take into account this historical fact because it, it doesn't connect the dots. Therefore, then we create something in the future. But in the year of 70 AD, something horrific took place in Rome. And so Rome was the dominant empire. Um, and there was a time in 70 AD that Rome sent 20,000 soldiers under the, can, uh, under the command of Emperor Titus. And they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. You can read about this in, in uh, the historian Josephus. Um, some of his stuff is, you're like, it's been proven. Some's like, is it real? But this is also confirmed in other, other books. So they, they, they surrounded Jerusalem for four months. They didn't let anything go in or anything come out. They, were, they starved them for four months. And then after Jerusalem became weak and the Jews became weak, they invaded the city. And the estimates are when they went in, they killed somewhere between 600 to 1,000 to 1 million Jews. And then they took 100,000 Jews, somewhere around 100,000 Jews into captivity um, as slaves. And so after Jesus declared this judgment over the religious, over the religious leaders, he, he walked out of the temple. Okay, so there's the first part. And the reason why I'm laying this foundation is because it's so important as we get into these next uh, studies over, over the next uh, several weeks that we need to, we need to I, w- I want you to see this. And so if this is true, if Jesus is a, is a true prophet, then what are the implications of that and on the other things that, that we look at and we say, well, that happens in the future. But, but what if they've already happened? 
Don't throw anything at me just yet. Just hang with me. So Jesus walks out of the temple. He turns and he looks at the temple. So remember, this is a chapter we get all the signs and you better watch out. God said it's going to get worse and these are the signs. And, you know, anytime there's an earthquake, well, there's going to be earthquakes, all this stuff. We get this from here, okay? He turns and looks at the temple. And so his, his disciples, Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, the, to, the, uh, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you, you see all these? So, so I want you to look. The disciples pointed out the what? The buildings of the what? The temple. He answered them, you see all these? Do you not? They're like, yeah, it's kind of big. It's right there. He says, truly, I say to you, so Jesus is prophesying again, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, okay, did Jesus' prophetic judgment regarding the temple come true within a generation? The answer is yes. So when Rome entered Jerusalem in 70 AD, they set the temple on fire. So as they were killing everybody, they set the temple on fire. And the gold within the temple melted. There were mass amounts of gold. There was a dome on top of the temple. That melted. All that gold melted, as, as you can imagine it would, down into the stone walls of the temple. So it ran in between, in between the cracks, because it, was, it burned so hot, it just turned to liquid. And so it all went down. And so later, it was ordered by Rome to remove all the stones on the wall so that they could recover the melted gold that had gone in between the cracks. So they scraped the, the, the gold from all the rocks. And then what happened later, so we, we know, so they, they took it, they took it all the way down to the foundation and removed all the stones all the way down to recover the gold. So no stone was what remained on top of another. This is historical. You can find it. So Jesus, thank God, he's not a false prophet, okay? This happened within a generation, 70 AD. So this first question then, when will these things be? Well, what, what, what were the disciples asking about? Jesus had just told them judgment was coming on the, on the Pharisees, Sadducees. They heard it. Judgment of between Abel to Zechariah. Jesus also walked outside, looked at the temple, and said, no stone's going to remain on top of one another of this temple. And the, next, and the question, the next question the disciples asked was question number one, when will these things happen? What were they asking about? What Jesus just said. Okay? I, I'm, what, the reason why I'm walking so slowly, it's so important you understand that actually the, the words of Jesus are very clear. If we don't come to them with a preconceived idea of what, what we think, what we actually want him to say. So the question was, this was not about the end of the world. The disciples were not asking, Jesus, when is the end of the world? Well, he didn't say anything about the end of the world. He's, they were talking about the judgment and the temple. Now, 
Now listen, I, I believe in the second coming of Jesus, and, so, and we'll get there at, through, this, through this series. But this first question, you have to understand, was about Jesus, what Jesus just said in the temple and about the temple. Many of the earlier historians connected the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD with the words of Jesus that we just read. This is one of the proofs that we hold as Christians. This is how we know the Bible's true. We go, well, let me show you something, buddy. See this prophecy right here? Look, look historically, it actually happened. Oh, wow, that's really cool. See what's gonna happen with this nation? Let me show you historically what happened after, after the, the, the prophet prophesied this, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this about this. Look, let me show you what happened. Let me, and we show atheists this, we show, why? It's proofs, prophecy's powerful. And you go, whoa, oh, how could that happen? That's why we use the, 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 the prophecy from the Old Testament regarding the, the birth and coming of Jesus. We say, see, but it said this, it's gonna be a, a born of a virgin. We look at Isaiah 53, this is the work of the, of the cross that, you know, um, who has believed our message and who's the arm of the Lord been revealed and by his stripes we were healed, the punishment brought us peace upon him. And then you go, hey, look, look at the cross. Look, look at all these hundreds of years later and you go, oh man, God is in control. That's what it does. So Jesus has just prophesied here, and very few evangelical Christians go, did that actually come true? Early historians connect. Unbelieving historians connect what Jesus said in Matthew 24 with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., much of the historian's account of the destruction of, of Jerusalem was, again, recorded by Josephus. And you can actually, it's very fascinating, if you get the chance, you, you, you should go and read it. He does a play-by-play -play of when Rome actually um, launched the siege upon, upon Jerusalem. Play-by-play. -play. They built the ramps. They did this. They did this. They went inside. This is what was happened. They let the temple on fire. This is what was happening. He just play-by-play. But, um, and actually, actually, Josephus is um, one, of the, um, one of the historians that we get the proof regarding the, the passage that talks about when Jesus was crucified. It says that the, the, uh, the, the sky went black and, and the, the sun was darkened. Josephus writes about that time, that day. He was non-Jewish. He was like, it was crazy. But he, but he writes it. So we go, well, that's proof. Proof that the Bible's true. So John Wesley, though, that's a name we know, right? John Wesley, the great revivalist um, in the 1700s, wrote this regarding the words of Jesus at the temple and towards the temple. He said this, this was most punctual, punctually fulfilled. For after the temple was burned, Titus, the Roman general, ordered the very foundation of it to be dug up after which the ground on which it stood was plowed by um, Ternius Rufus. This generation, so Wesley, notice, this generation of men now living shall not pass till all these things be done. So John Wesley understood what Jesus said at the temple and towards the temple was directed at a generation. 
Charles Spurgeon, which we, we know him, the, the, the preacher of all preachers, the preacher that everybody wants to be like and preach like. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, the disciples inquired first about the time of the destruction of the temple. The, the disciples asked, this, asked the first question about the temple. So this is, this is not future. This, is, this was very, very practical. So Jesus is answering the first question, but it's referring to the prophesied judgment he just spoke over the temple and over Jerusalem. So question number two, and we're going to revisit these later, but, but I, I, I have time for just two of them tonight, and then we'll come back and work through the question number two. They asked, what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of your coming? Um, then Jesus lays out the signs, right? Let me ask you a question. Did the disciples know why Jesus came the first time? Think about it. Did they know? Well, listen, the sons of thunder said, hey, hey, uh, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on the left and right of you? Can, can we do that? Jesus is like, you have no clue what you're asking right now. In Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is like, hey, you know, I'll build my church. church the gates of hell won't prevail against me. And then he, the scripture says, uh, I like the King James, says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And he talks about dying, and Peter's like, no, Jesus, never. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? The disciples did not know, did not fully know why Jesus came. So when Jesus is arrested, what do they do? They scatter. If you've been around Faith Bible Chapel for a long time, you know what that looks like. You've seen it in the play. They run. They run. Why? Because they were like, it's over. When Jesus is in the tomb, the disciples aren't waiting in Jerusalem like, oh, hang on, I know what's going to happen now. Where does Jesus find them? He finds them returning to what they did before. Fishing, doing whatever. Why? They didn't know why he came the first time. And so here they are outside the temple before any trial, before anything has happened, before he's ever been crucified, and, and they go, what's the sign of your coming? Most evangelical Christians go, see, they're asking about a second coming right there. They don't know why he's there the first time. They asked earlier also, hey, when are you going to come into your kingdom? So they've had this conversation before. So this, what's the sign of your coming into your kingdom? How are we going to know you're about to kick Rome's butt? Tell us. But Jesus answers the question. And he gave the disciples a list to look for what, what he would ha- what would actually happen in Jerusalem and to the temple. So this is, okay, what will be the sign of your coming? What, what is the signs of everything that you just said is going to happen? What are the signs of what everything is? So again, this is still within a generation that he's speaking of. How how are we going to know this is happening? 
So number one, Jesus immediately goes to this. Many will claim to be Christ. So we, many times in our, in our um, and mine too, in our view of this go, well, see, this is how we're going to know Jesus is about to return in the future is when all of a sudden people start claiming to be the Christ. Matthew 24, 4 through 5, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. So see that no one leads you astray. Who's he talking to? Disciples. He's not talking to you. He's not talking to me. He's not answering a, an ethereal question that has no impact on them. They're asking, when is all this going to happen that you're talking? What's the signs of that? And he says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name. So he's telling them, hey, hey guys, listen, many are going to come in my name and say, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So most people think this is going to happen at his, the, the sign of his second, this, his second coming. But actually, he's talking about the, the, what would happen in the destruction of Jerusalem. So d- did this happen in 70 AD or leading up to it? Yes, it did. It's a, it's a historical fact that after the resurrection of Jesus, <clears throat> within the years leading up to 70 AD, now, you can imagine the grip of Rome continues to get tighter. It gets stronger and stronger. Jewish historians re- record that there were 103 leading Jewish religious leaders who had followers who were claiming to be the Messiah. Why? Because this is still, there's still, a, a mess, Jews are still messianic. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, they rejected him because they're like, you're not the Messiah. So they're still looking for the Messiah. So naturally, Jewish people continue to look for the Messiah. John Wesley says this regarding this this very thing. Indeed, never did so many imposters appear in the world as a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem, undoubtedly, because that was the time where, and the Jews in general, expected the Messiah. So he's saying, Jesus, Jesus prophesied, did that happen? Either is Jesus a false prophet or is he a true prophet? Well, actually, when you look at history, he was a true prophet. This actually happened. So they said, what's the sign of the temple being destroyed? What's the sign of the judgment coming upon this? What's the sign of, of judgment coming upon Jerusalem as, 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 the, as bearing the punishment of the righteous blood between Abel to Zechariah? And he says, these are the signs. You're going to see people claiming to be the Messiah. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon said this, a large number of imposters came forward before the destruction of Jerusalem, giving, um, giving out that they were the anointed of God. So the next one is this, and I, will, I have to close with this one. I want to honor my time, and then we'll pick up. The next one is this. Jesus says the signs of the coming is wars and rumors of wars. So most of us, on, in, in, in our idea of, of this, these passages, we're like, we go, well, listen, there's wars and rumors of wars everywhere. There are wars. They're everywhere. Now, we do have, the, the issue for us is we know every war, everywhere, all at the same time because of TV, because of the internet. So there are wars and, and rumors of war. But again, I want you to connect this, I, I give a context to it because don't get lost. And I want you to connect this. So Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See, see to it that you, who's he speaking to? disciples are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet 
What end is he talking about? So again, he just said the destruction of the temple, judgment on Jerusalem. And he says this, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus, so he was sitting with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they asked, when are these things going to happen? And what are the signs of these things? So did that happen? Here's the question, did that happen? Did that happen? He was warning the disciples. He knew they would be overseeing and shepherding other people. Most of us take everything that's being said now, we apply it sometime in the future, but that was not the context of what was going on here. So the question is, all right then, did that actually happen? So when you look at the the Roman Empire, and when you look at the journey of the Roman Empire, and you can actually see it and study it, um, there were, during this time between the death of Christ and 70 A.D., there were all kinds of factions within the Roman Empire. They, it, they had broken up actually into four kingdoms, and those four kingdoms had four people who were claiming to be emperor. And the way the Roman Empire works is now they try to kill everybody else so that there's only one emperor remaining. Also with that is those different kingdoms held different authorities over different cities. And so, and so this kingdom would come after this city that was occupied by Rome, and, and the Jews who were in that city had to bear the, the, the brunt of the wars that was happening within the, the Roman Empire. So in a period of 18 months of the, of the Roman Empire, there were... Um, See, I, uh, I can't remember how many emperors. I forgot how many emperors. Shoot. Anyway, there was, like, there was um, like 11 different emperors within 18 months. And you, it was wars, rumors of wars. It was everything was happening. There was civil unrest. There were rumors of new emperors, and it was happening. And you have to understand, this is their context. They're not hearing rumors of wars from Africa. They didn't have the Internet. They're not, they're not getting on Twitter being like, man, did you hear what kick, kicked off in Ukraine? No, no, this, this is localized where they are. And so between, between the death of Christ and 70 AD, Roman Empire shattered, shattered. Four different kingdoms, war going on. And what Jesus was doing, and he was... He was he was answering their question in the context of which they asked it. And I want to propose to you that as we look at the end time events, that many of the things that we think will happen, actually many have already happened. And so we're going we're gonna to lean into this. Now, I'm not saying that, that this, this, um, this has nothing to do with our salvation, what you believe on this. This has nothing to do with with what God's called us to do, but I want to encourage you that there is a very strong proof of the end times that we are a part of the victorious movement forward as, as God's kingdom and his people to bring forth the kingdom of God on the earth. And everything that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 has taken place because he was answering contextually the questions of the disciples. And once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it. I would only ask you this, that you would ask God that 
to allow you to see this the way that he spoke it and that we could lay, it, lay down any of our filters of eschatology so that as we begin to study through this, that we would allow God's words to speak to us and that we would be filled with great hope that we are a part of a victorious future and a great harvest that's going to happen on the earth. And many times the reason why the church doesn't get after it is because we think it will never happen. We want to be in step with the words of Christ. Amen? So, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you, God, for the challenge. Um, Lord, thank you for your spirit. God, thank you for your people that are here. Lord, we want to continue to open our hearts to what you say. And God, we want to be a part of the great harvest that your word speaks about. We want to be a part of the kingdom that advances on the earth and that the knowledge of the glory of you, God, covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name, we all say amen. God bless you, friends. I love you.